every once in a while I'm watching something and it just catches my eye. It's visually arresting in a way that's unique and I can't quite put my finger on it. And that's what happened when I was watching the United States versus Billie Holiday. Our guest today, Andrew Dunn, was the cinematographer behind that project. And Andrew has shot a ton of great movies. He's worked with Lee Daniels, who directed United States versus Billie Holiday, multiple times. He's worked with Robert Altman. He's worked with Whitney Houston. He's worked with all kinds of screen legends, filmmakers, stars. And he has insights that are worth hearing, to say the least. But one of the things that's so cool about United States versus Billie Holiday is that it was shot on film, actual film, which isn't super common anymore. And the more we talked about it, the more I realized, oh, that's what it was that caught my eye. Now, I'm not one of those people who's film over digital no matter what, and neither is Andrew, and we talked about that a little bit. But it's nice to have a guest on who used celluloid to tell their story, and it's nice to talk about why and how it impacts things. And we talk about everything from camera usage, even got a Bolex involved in there, to capturing moments like Whitney Houston singing in The Bodyguard. Andrew's career has taken a lot of twists and turns, but for me personally, there's just something about film and movies shot on it that holds a special place and has that unique look. So definitely check out the movie, but listen to the interview. Find out more about where Andrew comes from and how he approaches things and what makes this job worth doing to him. So one of the first things I always I like to, to ask is what began your interest in cinematography and in a career in film and filmmaking or television? Where did that start for you, like source of inspiration or initial discovery? My start, I like to call it my start, my, my initial interest in cinematography and taking photographs actually was very, very young, probably about six years old when I got my first film camera, two and a quarter square at 120 film, and just going around taking photographs. And I could, of course, the expensive thing about the film and the um, getting processed and printing and everything, but it, it made me very careful about taking photographs and choosing them, selecting them. It must be around eight or nine, I suppose I just got this sort of, inkling and i don't looking back of course time and memory are deceptive but looking back but i think it's about eight or nine and i just had a really interest because we used to go and see a lot of films as a, as a family in the, in london then as what have london and uh, you maybe go to a cinema two three times a week and i used to go on saturday morning i would do saturday morning pictures with my brother what were the movies you saw then that that had an impact do you remember at that age, it's more family films, and I can't. Yeah, uh, I'm never going to see. Uh, you probably never heard of Cliff Richard, but Cliff Richard was a um, a British uh, copy of Elvis, a, a cleaner version that your parents might like of uh, Elvis Presley. The same uh, okay. Same sort of wiggling the hips around, I think. Like the equivalent of his beach movies or those kinds of things? Probably, yeah. They they got a London omnibus and took it to, to Greece on a, a holiday or something. And then, of course, the early, the Beatles, a lot of clever stuff going on in the in the, in the 60s when I was a kid. As I got uh, into my teenage years and saved some money, my um, hunger for movie film 
I saved up and got an eight millimeter camera, which is uh, what we call, we call it here standard eight, which is basically 60 mil film cut in, cut down the middle. A bit like 60 mil film is 35 mil cut down the middle. And that was called standard eight. And I had my own a primitive editing device with picture only, no sound at that point. And then uh, from there, I got a, what you call a Super 8, which is actually a film that's made specifically for 8mm system rather than just 60mm split in the middle. Then I got a 16mm, um, test my memory here, 16mm Clockwork Bolex. Ah, I've seen those. I've used one of those. <laughs> in fact, tell you what, we actually used an 816 Bolex on Billy Holiday, but we'll come to that. Oh, wow. What did you sh- just tell me real quick, what did you shoot Billy Holiday on? Uh, 35mm film, anamorphic, C-series lenses, which are 50, 60 years old, and they have a certain sort of quality about them, which has, uh, I think, what for me is an intimacy. I, You know, it's so funny. I don't consider myself a person who can tell every time I watch something what it was shot on anymore. Digital, even if it's digital film, I, I can often, like, after all the processing and everything, and when we see it streaming or where, wherever we see these things, but... Right from the first frames I saw, even in the trailers I saw for United States versus Billy Holiday, I was like, wait a second, something about this. Like I like the look like grabbed me and I was like, what is this? Like, why? It's a, is it the period? Because I'm a sucker for the period stuff. But now I know it's it's 35. <laughs> anyway. That's so so gratifying to to hear because as I say, we should go through the press because we do our DIs. It gets transferred to digital over the DI. And of course. And it goes, it's never really out there. And maybe like uh, Chris and Nolan and some of the uh, some of those guys will actually make sure there are some some prints to show in selected. Right. Scenes. If you hunt it down, you can find some of those movies projected. But mostly, you're going to see them on a digital format. Ultimately, the way the image moves is a certain life in celluloid, and I'm not being mm. you know, luddite. Yeah, it's a different. It's a different medium. It has a different effect. And also, when you you know actually. I remember doing some tests for Crazy Stupid Love years ago, and they because those, those guys, two directors, uh, John and Glenn, they were determined to shoot on digital at that point. It, it was still in its very early days, and we did some tests, and I did some panning shots. And it, it, when you pan on digital camera, it has a different capturing system than film, obviously. But it, it, one of the differences is that it's a staccato move, and it's sort of the, the vertical lines particularly jump, 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 jump. And the way film mm. records is more like a human experience, but. But going back to my teenage years. Yes, your film discovery. We were talking about the Bolex. And That's then where I we jumped. We jumped into the future. You know, whatever film I could get hold of. And then I uh, got a 16mm Bewley, a French, French camera um, with some nice lenses. I think, I think I had two of these. And the second one I think I've still got somewhere in a, in a cupboard or an attic somewhere or other. And I made a bunch of films on that with my friends. And my brother, who's an actor, and his friends, we... we made a bunch of films actually by then i got into edit i had a job in editing working uh, as an assistant yeah as an assistant and also you got a chance to edit so which is great cause yeah my, my boss my, my boss in the editing department said to me you're net <laughs> he knew i wanted to be a cameraman and i just got into this ca- editing thing because i was i mean quiet now but then i was terribly quiet and i it would, uh, I just sort of fell into it. I couldn't get a job on the camera side. So I went into editing. And my boss at that point, who knew I wanted to be a cameraman, said to me, you'll never be a cameraman. You're too diffident, which means self-confident. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I, I, if you see me now, 
I, my fist is like, because that's the best thing anyone ever, and some of your students listening to this, it's the best advice anyone ever gave to me, that you'll never do what you really want to do. And that made me more hungry, more determined to actually achieve what I wanted to achieve. And so this was now in my... Um, wow. I was going to ask, did it crush you in some way? But it sounds no, like no. it did the exact opposite. No, it did the exact opposite. Because he wanted me to stay in editing in his world. And I, uh, anyway, so I applied for his jobs and as in the camera side, eventually I got one as an assistant in BBC Scotland. Anyway, so I went to Scotland as a camera assistant. I moved up very, very quickly. Uh, and I was very lucky with my boss there, who was very encouraging, very avant-garde. We used to go to the cinema, again, in, up there, at like a Tribeca Centre or somewhere like that in mm-hmm. New York. The cinemas that show what then were quite interesting esoteric films. And now we would have, we would have been more like you know seventies eighties at this yeah, time. Yeah, no, I guess yeah, late seventies or something. What was coming there at the time? What were the things? One of the reasons I ask is because now everything that comes out is kind of like instantly available all over the place, or pretty quickly, yeah. <laughs> depending on release schedules. But what, what a lot of people, especially listeners we have, might not recognize is that there was often a delay. So you might get something different that, you know, a release that you would get there might have been a release that was timed differently or might have been something local that we didn't see on the States for a while later. Yes, so Glasgow Film, the London National Film Theatre, and, and they have it in various provincial places in the UK and, and of course, New York um, in the States. But they would even, like, during the week, they'd have different films each night. You never hurry up, so you go in, on a Friday night, whatever, you go in, uh, in Saturday afternoon, you go see these films. But then I was lucky enough during this time to go to the Edinburgh Film Festival, Edinburgh Arts Festival, and amongst the film festival. So I would go there as a documentary cameraman and cover this festival and all the all the things going on, and I'd get into this world and we'd go and see press showings of films because we could, and uh, and we're going to um, the premiere of Robbie Muller, Wim um, Benders, I think it was American Friend or something like that, one of those films. Oh yeah. Abel Gantz, uh, Napoleon. So this is a very formative time in my life, going to Scotland. And I didn't know what I was doing by going there. I just want to get out of the editing side and to actually get my hands on cameras and start making films as a cameraman rather than an editor. So having said that, as an editor, I could put my film, my film I shoot at weekends, into the bath secretly, go through the lab. <laughs> exactly. With a, in, in, in England, I give these guys like a, a box of tea or something. That was a currency. <laughs> get your film developed too and then i get it back i've got to edit it in the middle of the night uh in the using the editing suites and then i get to do dubbing also so i learned a hu- unbeknownst to me at that time when i was my uh early 20s i was learning a huge amount just because yeah. i was doing it you know just get it just and the kids come up to me now and say how do you become a camera whatever i just say well get out there and do it you know get, find a story it could be like i'm i'm looking at uh you know hear a, a chaise in this room I'm in and uh, yeah. that has a history so don't pick some big subject pick a smaller subject you can elaborate on and then tell the story where that thing's been what life it's had the people involved with it and down the years so at that time I was learning so much uh, and of course having gone to Scotland I got my hands on cameras I moved up very quickly there to become a cameraman and what was the first project you 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 lensed as a cinematographer? Uh, well, at that that point in Scotland is a great learning place because you could do all sorts of films. One day you'd be doing like local news, and another time you'd be doing drama or, or or farming, even or the Gaelic language in some faraway island off the west coast of Scotland. 
Um, yeah. One of the first dramas I shot was with Bill Forsyth. Hmm. And it was called Andrina. He'd written it. He's a Scottish director who did um, Gregory's Girl and um, uh, Local Hero. And so that was my first sort of taste of doing a, a proper TV film, if you like. Uh, yeah. And, and that interspersed with all sorts of other things. So you learned very, very quickly, minimal, minimal equipment. And then uh, I went from there down, back to um, England from there to uh, a city called Bristol. I did a whole bunch of work. I was just relentlessly going from one project to another. These were TV films, which a lot of the feature films now we see, and I get all the screeners from the Academy in the US and Academy in the UK, and a lot of these films now are actually, we would have made them. I'm not, <laughs> I hope this sounds right, but the films, TV films that we made then were actually now the cool feature films. So um, <laughs> So you were just working a lot out of Bristol. And there I teamed up with a director called Mick Jackson. Yes. Was he and that relationship what moved you to Los Angeles? It did. A nuclear war TV film called Threads with, with Mick. And that was my first outing with him. He had worked with another cameraman before that. Whatever happened, I again, this person was available or whatever, but someone decided I should do it. So I went up to the North of England, a place called Sheffield, we shot threads, and then that won all sorts of uh, accolades. Someone told me recently, actually, because they'd done a special DVD version of this, uh, Spielberg watched it. And, uh... Hmm, interesting. It's kind of high concept, right? It assumes that a nuclear holocaust in Sheffield, right? Am I correct? Yeah. That that's well, the... across the UK, across the world, actually, too, you know. Right. Um, and then from there, I did a couple of other projects with Mick, and your relationship with Mick Jackson seems like it grew because you did a couple of projects here. Did he? How did LA Story and The Bodyguard come to be? I had left. I, I what we call freelance. I left the BBC on freelance. Mick got a film in in um, South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina, with uh, Dennis Hopper and Gary Oldman and uh, Francis McDormand actually. And we went off to Columbia, South Carolina. Did that, and then whatever year it was, but a year later, or whatever, uh, Mick called me up and said he's um, that Steve Martin had asked him to do LA Story, and would I like to come over over there and do that? That was my introduction, introduction to LA. Kind of a like a funny way to enter the Los Angeles or Hollywood experience, though. I guess Chattahoochee, which was nineteen eighty nine, that's the one with Oldman and Hopper. Was that sort of like? Yeah, I mean, Dennis Hopper being a huge name, and I mean, Gary Oldman to some degree, but like, was that a big, Ned Beatty is in yes. it, right? It was kind of a big step into this cultural film landscape for you. Was that the kind of point where you started shooting bigger things here, basically? It, it, it was, although that, that was a sort of a non-union, you know, semi-indie project. I've got no idea what the budget is now, what, relatively, and what it was then. Yes, that, that, to answer your question, yeah, that was a step into the American way of shooting. First, I got a gaffer from LA, key grip from LA. How did it change? How was it a change? Was it, or was it a change? Dif- different um, ways of working in the states to the UK, and I, I was used to like the grip system here is quite different. The grip gaffer relationship in the, in the states. How how so? In the UK, in, in the British system, it has changed a little bit now, but we um, basically have a dolly grip and uh, who's a part of the camera department 
and then he'll have some people, some, maybe an assistant or a trainee or something, and that's it. The gaffer will do everything from uh, generator hmm. cables all the way through to planning, lighting and things, and the flags and colors and the cutters, uh, whereas, as you know. So you don't really have a grip department. I One of the great things about the state system, which I learned, it took me a little while to learn until I worked with a really great key grip, is how the benefits of it. Because essentially in the States, they would have a, a truckload of stuff. Here, here yeah. you, you might have to sort of plan things ahead with you know, scaffolding, uh, pipe work and things. You want to have rigs and things wherever there. If you decide in the morning that that night you want to have a rig up somewhere, they could probably make it out of wood or do something effective. They have a whole grip team. And the, other, the other great thing in the States is you have another pair of eyes watching for you. I've worked some great gaffers here and there, of course, but over there you have another pair of eyes watching for, and you, you can talk to the gaffer about a particular light and what we're going to do with that, and then the grip will be there also, and they'll start cutting it or anticipating getting stuff ready. Right. So, like your your gaffer is more involved here in this system with you crafting light because there's a grip who's actually physically moving things. Uh, yeah, to a certain extent, I explain to the UK, the British people, the way the American system works is. Um, Actually, the grips in the States do a lot of the art of it. They will put colors up, they will put cutters up, bounce uh, material and controlling light and sculpting light. Uh, but of course, my background is working with the gaffer very closely. So when I go to the States, my first uh, hiring, if you like, my closest, apart from the first AC and operator, my closest comfort, um, collaborator is... Uh, the gaffer so i will work closely with him and hopefully they will work closely with their key group and then right. get all the information gets transferred so it's easier for me to work through one person the gaffer yes yeah well i mean la story was a big project uh obviously and and the bodyguard was i, I assume huge w- was it just kind of this natural progression doing these bigger films with these major stars at the time um the two of you having come back come up together a little bit what was it like uh it was great i mean there's a lot of obviously with director like mick uh and and the directors get uh, going forward with lee daniels there's a lot of trust and understanding and symbiosis with your like minds and understanding of each other and what you can do what you can't do so so with mick he clearly thought i was his uh, collaborator photographically and I would understand what he wanted because he came from Mick came from an editing background so he did not the cuts uh, and that's where one of the areas I learned to use two cameras all the time because he'd always want coverage and encouraged me to use certain cameras so I, I saw uh, very early on I, I cut my teeth learning to use cameras which doesn't worry me at all now and do you always do you always do multiple I try to and if it helps the actors and the director get more coverage if you need to cross shoot for some reason, or they, they want to overlap dialogue because they're free in cross shoots, and they get the actors to bounce off each other rather than talking to someone off camera, uh, I think it can be a great benefit. I generally do. Anyway, so as a question about the big film with the bodyguard, it was a big film for me. But I, looking back now, I sort of strangely not. What it's so weird because I look back and I think I was how was I not intimidated by this. is it just because i had nothing to lose i think partly and this may be of interest to people listening to this is the more experience you have and the more knowledge and the people people's perception of you that you can do it it therefore you the expectations of you are higher and i've worked over the years with a lot of first-time directors which is great i love it uh but also i think I get put in these situations when producers and people look 
at someone like me, they might look at me because I can help a director, writer, director yeah. a lot more than maybe I did then because I was with Mick and he was, um, you know, so I'm trying to say, but I don't quite understand how I wasn't, maybe I was, but it <laughs> I imagine you were ready to meet the moment yes. a little bit, that it was like within the flow of what you had been doing and despite it being large scale. And, and I think, is it possible also all of you didn't quite anticipate the elements of phenomena that would come out of that. I mean, the song Whitney Houston at that time, you know, there were elements that crossed that you can't ever predict when a movie is going to have. When you're shooting them, you just do not know. And I mean, Precious is one of many like that for me, but um, the bodyguard was very interesting because nobody knew. And of course, Whitney was a huge star at that time. Kevin couldn't do anything wrong. But still, you don't quite know. And this, the, when that song you refer to, we recorded that live in the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami, in, in Miami. And I was on one. I was on that three hundred mil close up of her. And even talking about it now, I still. I mean, this is magic moments when you're doing like yeah. lucky enough to do. And talk about that now, and this tingles by that around the back of my spine, just um, remembering that because we did like one take of that song, I think, and all the recordings trucks out the back, and she just did one take. Did you yeah. really? Wow! So they recorded it live there. And that, that was the, and we did also did some rock, some uh, in, pre-productions, some rock, some videos to go with some songs, sort of thing. But it was, all the, and also, I'm not sure, I'm a bit wary of how much time you got, but um, that that song, "I Will Always Love You," it was go, it was going to be a different song on the day we were gonna, they were gonna, they, we were down in Long Beach somewhere, a little uh, cafe, uh, a diner. They all disappeared off for hours. Seemed like hours and hours. And we were gonna, we were gonna, they were gonna use a Jimmy Ruffin song, "What Became of the Broken Hearted," "What Becomes the Broken Hearted." Ah. And then they decided, they discovered another film was using that song. So they went off big powwow, and we came back, and then they used the Dolly Parton song in a juke. No way. <laughs> <laughs> So wait, who's they? Was it Whitney and and Mick and like who was the team that was like, oh, we can't use the song, we got to find another probably one. Probably Kevin's Kevin Kevin's people, maybe Larry Kazdan, Mick, and we, we were stuck in this baking hot diner and uh, <laughs> blacked out. Wow, I've never heard that story. That's amazing. I didn't even remember that Lawrence Kazdan wrote it. That's another name on that. That movie has so many, it intersects so many things. It does, because Kevin and, and, and Larry Kasdan go back. Um... Another question just about shooting at Whitney Houston, sort of, you know, capturing that, capturing her. Uh, you, you mentioned the lens. You were clearly aware as you were shooting it that there was something there, oh. you know, that there was something happening. Like, what is that like? Well, I tell you what, actually, this is, I think it's my first real experience of, seeing someone like Whitney who you on the core of a you know on a, on a stage a, you know a, a film stage somewhere a location you might just walk past this person sitting in a chair not even this little, little person sitting there just going about with reading a magazine or whatever and then what's extraordinary about someone like Whitney and I've experienced it since is this person who becomes they write this flower this wonderful uh, creature becomes this person sitting in this chair in a corner of a room to the star you know they get the microphone get the spotlight they rise into the moment this other thing this other wonderful incredible thing happens 
and I still wonder to this day how what what does happen. I think she just um, is, was born to the breed. I mean, I, after that, just as byproduct, I, I directed a gospel documentary about um, gospel in the states with um, British documentary producer, and I was directing this, and then we I did it with Whitney's mother. Um, and the history, a little bit of the history of Whitney and uh, gospel singing. So, but that's it's also part of because it's so much in her soul. Once she um, could share that voice with the world, it became her uh, conduit, her way of dealing with her own angst and pain, or whatever. Which brings us how many years later? Yes, I was going to say this obviously ties in. It was one of the first things I thought, knowing that you shot Whitney thinking about Billie Holiday and thinking about the film. There's so much, so many well, Whitney was a very troubled soul also, which wasn't really apparent to everyone at that time. And Billie, of course, was. And the, like, the, the voice, this thing, this, her way of, fortunate enough for all of us, but for them as well, I think for the, one of the human conditions is we all have, we all have our own hang-ups and pains and troubles and things, but the lucky ones, in a way, and I won't say that Whitney or Billy are lucky. The lucky ones, yeah, but, find, but the gift yeah, they have find yeah. an outlet, uh, and and so I, I think they, they, as I say, so slightly common thread through. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Developing the relationship you have with with Lee Daniels, who's a great director, and you have done a number of of really important, powerful films together. Um, I kind of want to figure out or learn when you met and when you formed this dynamic. But I also want to ask about Robert Altman and Gosford Park uh, and, and you doing that project, working with him. Especially because you mentioned multiple cameras, and then I immediately thought about the way it is, how, how working with Robert Altman is a departure from other directors, perhaps, and Gosford Park comes a little later in his career, but how did you get involved with with, uh, with, with Altman, I, I think I was approached, and I remember I was driving up, I, I live in about far as southwest of London, and I remember driving up that morning and my agent said oh we got a call from uh, about this film and i remember sitting in her at my agent's office that afternoon uh reading it and then i think i met the next day and i obviously they were seeing other people as well but there was a sort of a connection there um and i'd always been a fan and that worked out for me to work with him um and i think actually during the process how can I describe this? But we spent a little bit of time together before shooting, but not a lot because one of the ways, I think it's apparent, it's well-written, um, well-documented uh, over the years, the way he works. And one of the things I love is what I call the organic approach. And you you watch a performance or the actors in a room, then we decide where we as the audience are going to be to observe this. 
and then mm. wait, let's let them let them have the stage, the location, the set, whatever it is, and then we don't come in with any preconceived plans, except that we will be creating intimacy and a freedom for the actors. I think again, like you said just now, that my lack of concern or lack of fear, or whatever, of using two cameras was not, not it didn't it was just part of what I do did and uh, and still make it look hopefully make it look good um although he, he he wasn't sort of i wasn't desperately concerned the way something looked as long as it was he could hear this hear all these people talking with multiple soundtracks and get oh. yeah that's his that that's like his real trademark in a lot of ways right the way he uses the overlapping dialogue stuff and the and having spent you know, probably I don't know how many years before that, but twenty years before that, I was like observing his work, and so. I, um, but uh, what am I saying? So what am I saying? Oh, and and the other thing with Bob, you have to almost light it without him noticing you're lighting it because he wouldn't. He wasn't like anti lighting or anti making it look good, but you know, <laughs> like if he's <laughs> tweaking something or doing something. We developed a relationship very early on, and then he saw the dailies and stuff. And, and I said, We used, and the, I, mean, I remember the very first day we had two cameras, and the, I was on one camera, and a guy called Peter Taylor was on the other camera. One, we were in Maggie, Maggie's bedroom, I think, or something, and we had two tracks going because every, every shot in that movie is a moving shot. There's not one static shot in the whole movie. If, if you ever see it again, you'll see it. But you're not allowed to use lights. <laughs> lights yeah. so without noticing. And um, for the very first day, I remember we got. We, one camera moved in front of the other camera and it's like the, the guys in the British crew say, oh, you know, we're a bit conservative then. So, oh, what's going on? What's going on? Because it, it, it didn't spook me and Bob, you're not going to use that bit, you know, for the benefit of having the, you know, so it was a sort of a, a freedom of approach, a freedom for the actors and I think I was in tune with that and I was, I was sort of uh, enough of a free spirit then to just go with it uh, and it, and it yeah, did you and did you and he ever have any you know conflict over? I mean, you I would imagine you'd need to be a very specific kind of cinematographer or have a loose adjustable approach to be able to adjust to a director who doesn't really want to see you lighting and just wants to let actors decide where they're going to go. And and lack of prep. I mean, he wouldn't want to. We'd go and visit locations and things and discuss other stuff, discuss life, you know. Um, <laughs> not not lighting yeah, or rigging like, or nobody, this like is the room we're going to use and this is how we're going to have Bob Balladam Bob Balladaman here and at that time it was uh, Jude Law and that became Ryan Felipe uh, those characters that were the rooms we're going to use so it's just a general approach in a way I've done a few films with Andy Tennant uh, and there's a certain sort of similarity that in a, in a way I mean there's a these people I get on with mostly have a, a soul I think Andy Lee you know, a bunch of other people I work with, of course, but uh, just off the top of my head is that, like, both Bob, actually, if those three, Bob, Andy, and Lee, it very difficult to go and yeah. go scout anywhere and make a plan. And I would, I, it doesn't spook me because it, it just, I know we're getting on the day and we'll work out, choreograph it and work out what we're doing it. And hopefully it looks half decent. And it wasn't what you were asking me, was it? Oh, Bob, yeah. So we, um, we just got on fabulously and he'd sit with me at breakfast and just talk about what we're doing or just about again about life and uh, stuff you know I, I really want to know how you started working with lee daniels like what was okay, the first right. project that year i was in whatever year it was i was in budapest that summer doing a film and i got a, a script and, and a uh, inquiry 
my kids have told me off of pronouncing inquiry like that American. (laughs) (laughs) We don't mind. (laughs) And it was going to be later that year. And it's very tiny, really interesting script. Anyway, I was not available. So thanks, but no thanks. And later in the year, the film I was going to do fell through. And the inquiry came through again. uh, And I was available. Lee phoned phoned up. We talked on the phone. And I flew out. And we... uh, that was, that was precious, and I had. Uh, it was going to be a very short shoot. It's going to be basically uh, Thanksgiving to Christmas, uh, like tiny budget. I had supper with him and his mother and some friends at uh, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving that year, and then we um, shot through to Christmas, uh, the dollar days, and uh, then which we weren't supposed to finish. Anyway, so the, then it went on the New Year. And then we did one the following June because by then people could see that we had something, potentially something special, and there was a bit more, a bit more money came in. Anyway, so the way we worked, uh, I think again, it's that sort of, uh, it's it's like a, a marriage, you know, where you have a, a, a meeting of minds and, and a lot of experience. And my area and i have to say this about myself but i don't have an ego but of course of course i do because i'm a human being but i might sure. always try and what i do subvert my ego to the story and the director what the way that they want because i think i learn more because i will just go like i think all cinematographers are chameleons or aspire to be with lee it just we just he could see i could see what he was trying to get and i would Together we went somewhere where neither of us had gone before. I think that's also a secret to a perfect relationship in marriage or friendship or anything else. And certainly with someone talking about direct, so you you both embark on this journey. You're going to go, it's easy to go the same trodden path, but you go somewhere where neither of you have been before. You bring your life, your experiences, your knowledge to the, to the table. I mean, one of the things that's so cool about it and the way you're talking about it is that you come from very different places. Uh, yeah. backgrounds but also like perspectives but you melded together on these projects and they become these kind of unique expressions precious obviously was like a breakthrough a lot of these movies like oscar nominated and things like that or winners in some cases but then you know following up when the two of you you know you collaborate again on the butler and the Empire Pilot we did too. The pilot for the Empire. Oh, and the Empire Pilot, right? I, I God, I forgot that that's his. <laughs> yeah, like he's had quite an impact in a over the yeah. Like you describe it as this marriage of going new places. Do you feel the two of you evolving what you're doing in each one a little bit? Oh, definitely. I think you can get uh, deeper into it's a trust which you have to keep. Like any any marriage or friendship is is an excitement. In my early days, I used to be very purist and say you never work the same director twice because what happens in the first the first film it's like the first date where it's really exciting and you, it's, sort of, <laughs> it's a sort of free something happens and uh then you do another film because you're friends and actually then you don't want to hurt your friend and you don't necessarily speak the truth but the further you get into this relationship the more honest you can be and tell the truth and then you can actually say well look i don't i think that what you're talking about is that not that i necessarily say it, is absolutely crap and then we should do this and then you, you have this sort of little creative discussion or, or, or something. well you, you strike me as such a um like you say low low ego but like willing to learn and adjust how yeah. do those moments like let's just take the dynamic you have with lee daniels for example those moments where you disagree how do they manifest in a way that you can have a creative disagreement find a better path forward but not be in conflict in a damaging way. One of the great things about Lee is he will, you will think you're on a certain trajectory and he'll suddenly go off at, at the right hand with some ta- tangent 
and that is very exciting because you, you're something you didn't and he does it with actors as well you know like one day uh. one day with andrew he, he'd be doing billy holiday and he's suddenly with the, with the microphone the voice of god thing he'd say now now be andrew and you just see her face and suddenly this other thing this other thing was happening to her and he really he does it with actors with people like me and keep you on your toes and make you think. It's yeah. Not uh, so what's, if there's any, um, going back to your question, is if there's any um, creative disagreement, I think he will understand. I'll understand, I think I do anyway, and that's where I think one of the sort of secrets of the relationship was where he wants to go, what he's trying to do with something. So he has a lot of trust there. So if I say, look, let's try this, can we shoot from here? And can sort of that person, that character being in that, over there can they come here or whatever and he'll try it out if it works doesn't work then we will just investigate stuff and, and there's no sort of animosity or, or, or but you you're able to to navigate disagreement or different aspects without being conflict and then together you go i think director some type of relationships and it kind of directors producers directors actors actors is that you both go to some place you hire like a, a peak or a mountain or whatever you go to a place you couldn't scale on your own but together you're going to go to this place a higher than you dreamed you might have gone there either with anybody else or then you're on your own um you're still going to have on the on the precipice of uh, of getting up to the peak of this mountain you're going to slip and slide and but then you're going to save each other uh, yeah. and support each other to get there and sometimes it doesn't work the peak isn't always what you thought it was going to be um but then you can you've tried it and I think one of, the, one of my some of my heroes, cinematographers, are the ones who clearly have tried things out, and you can't always look at their work and think that is I know their work. It doesn't always work. It's like Altman; a lot of his films didn't work, uh, but when they did, you could see he was doing uh, something different. And Lee, Lee is like that, you know. Have you shot film together on the other projects? Or was this, going back to talking about film, was this the first film? Uh, Precious was film and The Butler was film. Okay, so you have a history together. You guys are shooting on 35. Yeah, I mean, they were both, I mean, I think uh, The Butler was probably a point where digital was sort of grown up enough. Uh, yeah. But, I think, but certainly Precious was far enough back to, to not even think about using uh, digital and uh, Butler may have been on the cusp, but we, we shot film on that too. And of course, Empire Pilot was uh, for TV, so we shot digital on that. And then we, well, Billy, it was like, like a no-brainer to go the celluloid route. Did you get any pushback anywhere no. on choosing that? Not at all, not at all. And the, the producers were totally got it, understood. And we had a lab in Montreal, so we could get the film back. Wasn't it? Don't send it off to New York or, or LA or anywhere. And, yeah, uh, that was great. And we shot a lot of films. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a couple of days we shot nearly forty thousand feet each day wow tell me about the using using the bolex and, and stock and just creating the period i mean we don't talk about using film as much as i wish we did uh, i love it as a medium so i'm always curious to hear about you know a feature like this and and i feel like you could probably part of the warm embrace of, of celluloid to create the feel of the era which I'm just, I'm very happy I recognized it. <laughs> but I... so the warm embrace, I have to remember that one. That's, that's true. <laughs> the film has a, it has, has a depth and as much Kodak will deny it. There's a, when the hit, light hits the back layer, the, 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 the celluloid side of the film, 
as it goes through the emotions and bounces back, there's something else happens. It's a little magic, and the film's always moving. It's like this thing's alive. You know, each, each frame you see. Even in the, in the, have you seen the whole film? Yes. You have a great. So it's sort of this is it's a, it's a live thing happening. It's on digital, and there's some some great films and TV shot on digital, of course now, but there's sort of uh, things moving each frame is moving and uh, and, it's, and I think the way it, it blurs the way we the human eye looks at the human eye and brain looks at things there's a blurring goes on and I think film has that whereas digital tried to be very crisp sharp and f- captures each frame in a different way I think I said earlier but you mentioned the Bolex and I kind of oh, yeah. wanted to get a sense of when the Bolex worked its way in and and some of the choices like what stock you chose and why and 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 how you your approach to you mentioned the lenses too but just the general strategy I guess most of the film stock we use probably about ninety percent of the film stock we use is thirty five mil five two fifty two one nine which is the five hundred ASA tungsten balance stock most of Billy's life she didn't basically get out of bed till two p.m. and most hmm. of her life was like. Nighttime, so so you needed a faster stock. Yeah. And I think it's just a beautiful stock anyway. I and mean, I think, uh, I think once you decide on a the brush you're going to use, or the pen, or the the ink, whatever it is, yeah, put, you stick with that uh, regardless because I think it can be. But what, what I say is like you look at a Bible and there's zillions of words on each page, or you look at a comic book, but each one's are telling a story and it's a certain style of thing. So whatever your choice is, you stick with that because you don't want to like disturb the audience and take them out of that out of that style of image making and then we use 16 millimeter clockwork bolex h16 for some of the sequences we tried it electric but the thing about electric is a very instant stop and start so it doesn't give you the flash frames with a clockwork bolex i could press Uh. intermittently press the shutter and it would give these flash frames and intermittent motion was like you're creating a stop motion but staccato image within natural shooting process so and lee loved that we loved it and when billy was in some of her darker worst moments yeah we employed this and then they liked it so much in the cutting room they transferred some of the 35 mil footage and doctored it to make it look like the 60 mil Bolex footage with this sort of um, staccato uh, flash frames and images like that. So, we, you know, there's a scene in the film where the, the end of the scene is a replica, as close as we can get it, of a famous iconic image of Billy in a recording studio holding a yeah. glass gin with a microphone. She's completely out of it when she's lost. She's not doing anything. And we shot yeah. that 4 a.m. on a Saturday morning, everyone's keen to go home after like an 18, 18 hour day, whatever it was. Yeah. And uh, I said to Lee, can I just get, get the Bolex out and shoot some more stuff? And so uh, I just did some more things with her hands, her face, and the, the band. And it, it, it's these moments, I think these are moments we live for in making films, that these magic yes. moments, that uh, there's 10 minutes of shooting time, but they're on. They're on there forever, you know. I'll be looking over in five years' time. I'll be in an aeroplane somewhere, looking over someone's shoulder, and I'll see this film, and I think, "Wait, are we? That's what we did that four a.m. that Saturday morning." Yeah, we have people listening to this. It's it, it is. It's like a drug, and it's those magic moments you you live for. And when you're doing it, sometimes you think, "Why am I doing this? It's so bad, hard." You know, you're out in a freezing cold. <laughs> You stop doing it, you get withdrawal symptoms, and then you, you go back in. you want to find those moments. Yeah. Striving for these highs, you know, and you, they come along. They do come along. But you have to keep working hard at it. 
I, I love that there's a lot of connections between um, the bodyguard and Whitney Houston and, and this the United States versus Billie Holiday. But one of them also seems to be that, that those moments happened filming both films for you. Yes. Does every film have those moments or does it for you? Oh, gosh, I hope so. I mean, some don't. Yeah. But I think it's, yeah, I'd like to say most of them do. I mean, there's always, when you love doing what you do, when you, you love doing and you're lucky enough to do it, the, you, you, these moments, you just unwittingly, they show up. Because yeah. you work, well, they do, because you work so hard at it. And it's often the connection between the camera, I would say my camera, but it, the, this camera thing which is capturing some magic moment from an actor. And it's not about the big spectacle or the flying, people flying around and being superheroes and things. It's actually this, these, it's this, it's these incredibly intimate moments between the, and the audience, which is this, we use the camera to do that. The camera is the audience, taking back to the open thing. And that connection you get, and that's what, so that's the magic, you know? Yeah. Uh, well said. You couldn't, I can't say it any better. Um, well, thank you so much for all the time you gave Wouldn't us. This was, this was really fun. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to Andrew Dunn for coming on. Check out United States versus Billy Holiday. It's available on streaming platforms. And it was shot on film, in case you didn't catch that. We mentioned it a few times earlier. Be sure to check out our gear guides. We're really excited to have launched these. All you have to do is go to the NOF Film School homepage. Scroll down to the bottom, and in the footer, there's a little thing that says Gear Guides. Click on that. It'll take you to a page filled with individual guides for all your purchasing research needs, from lenses to drones to software to screenwriting software to cameras, different kinds of cameras, different scale cameras. Everything you want, and we're going to keep adding to this and keep updating it. And it's really just a resource for you to research what's out there and what uses various items have at various price points. Um, so bookmark the page, frequent it often, let us know what you wish we were covering there. And of course, like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Who would you like to hear us interview? What kind of topics would you like to hear us discuss? Let us know ask at nofilmschool.com. Thanks so much.